folks. Let's find 2 Peter chapter 2 again, and we're actually going to look back at the, one, at the first verse we looked at last week in 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look back at 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. And I'm going to tell you, I just didn't feel uh, settled about what, uh, what I was able to say last week, and I felt like I just needed to say more about this. Um, this is in no way to be uh, too uh, revelatory about the process. The process is a prayerful one. But there are just some things, especially in the uh, epistles, that are just so deep and so rich every single verse. They just require a lot of to leave something out that's vital. They're not narrative. They're not telling a story very often. More often than not, they're making very deep theological points. And this is just one of them. In fact, we're being asked here, just to be quite blunt with you, to define something that we can struggle to define, and that is, is heresy. Now, as I was sitting on the front pew, I was kind of laughing a little bit to myself because I thought of a quote that I, if I remembered it early enough, I would have put it in your notes, but I didn't, and so therefore I'll, you know, I'll, I'll just tell you now. I remember back in, in, I don't remember it specifically, I wasn't born yet, but I'm aware of the fact that back in 1964, when the Supreme Court dealt with the idea of, of what are called obscenity laws, the very famously, Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart. Again, if your name is Potter Stewart, you're probably on Supreme Court, Brother Kyle. Um, I'm not. I have a boring name, so therefore I'm not going to ever be very much. Okay, so name your children well, apparently. Potter Stewart's on the Supreme Court. And Potter Stewart said, um, I can't define obscenity, but I know it when I see it. And so that's kind of the way we are when it comes to things like heresy. The... the is a lot looser than maybe some of us would be comfortable with and what it leads us to do often is call things heresy because we disagree with them personally. However, I think if you really look at the depth of what Peter's saying, especially in this verse and what he's going to continue to echo throughout the rest of this letter, Peter's got a pretty good idea of what he wants us to understand that heresy really is. And so today as we look at this, we're going to, we're going to not necessarily call names today. I'll be quite blunt with you. There was a temptation within me, as always there's within every, every pastor, to begin that, begin to call names. I, I didn't feel led to do that. I did feel led to make sure that we started to understand um, that, that heresy is something like Potter Stewart said, that we need to know it when we see it. We need to understand the implications of it. And so let's, let's look first at the verse. We'll read again, then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll begin uh, to do this work. Um, Paul says in 2, excuse me, Peter says, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach, God, today. I pray, God, that I do it rightly. I pray, God, that I don't leave anything out. But that everything I say, Father God, is something that you've burdened me with. Because, God, I felt burdened by this, by the lack of sermon even last week. By not getting, Father God, as far as I needed to go, Father God. And so for that reason, I want today, Lord, to continue the work, Father. I pray, God, first and foremost, God, for your blessing, that you will bless me to preach and bless your people to hear. I also pray, Father God, for patience among your people, because when things are dragged out, Father God, it can feel as if you're not making sufficient progress. I, I understand, God, the nature of preaching, and that sometimes things are dragged out purposely for point. And so, Father God, I want to side with that. 
And I want to say that I, I know, God, that you are going to be master of this time and that you would not have burdened me if you did not want me to speak, Father God. And for that reason, I pray your people, God, will trust me enough in that, to, Father God, to, to more specifically trust you that your will is done in this pulpit as it, as, it, as it is in those pews. So, Father God, I pray for that, but also pray, Father God, that the end of this is always to lift up the cross. Heresies, God, are detrimental to the work of, of, the, of the kingdom, Father God, because they obscure the cross. They keep people from being saved, Father God. So let us begin, God, to do this work, to identify those things, Father God, and to strongly, Father God, declare your gospel always, Lord. I love you, Father God, and I pray, God, that you create within this church, a, 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 God, a, a, a culture of warriors for the gospel who are willing, Father God, to fight over those things because the gospel, Father God, is the most precious message of all. In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray, Lord. Amen. Okay, today we're going to look specifically at a single clause in the vocal verse. I mean, one clause. And, and Peter writes, he says, in, he says, it literally, as I pointed out, it comes between the commas. He says, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies? Now, we get a ton in, out of that in the English and in the Greek. We can, we can grow so much from that. The original tongue, it helps us in understanding exactly what our Lord is saying through his servant Peter. Now, begin with, we have to start with a dangerous thing, but something that's necessary. Something that's necessary. Because our time's always limited. I don't have hours to stand before you and pontificate. I just don't. I can't get started now and finish up about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, you wouldn't settle for that. And I'm not sure I even have the energy for that, to be blunt, at this age. I have to, I have to do it as quickly as possible. And so what I'm going to do is, is say this, that we have to begin with the presupposition, though they're dangerous, if you pay attention, I think the presupposition is um, to begin with. We have an understanding of what heresy is and that it is always destructive to the body of Christ. Heresy destroys the body of Christ. Heresy harms the kingdom. So why talk about things like heresy? Because I'll be honest with you, all kinds of groups that don't want to talk about it. And they don't want to talk about it because they don't want to be... Called out, simply put. If you don't establish a standard, you've got nothing to compare to. So we're going to establish a standard. That's, that's important for us. It's always instructive. As a church, we must do everything that we can to solidly preach and teach only the truth of Scripture. And to never shy away from it, even if it may seem to offend some other sensibility that we have. It's always dangerous, folks. When we make statements like, like the Bible cannot be saying that. Virtually everything that I have read, to be honest with you folks, in the modern day, last 20 years, in which somebody is either openly advocating some type of heretical departure from clear biblical truth or is getting so close to it that their dangers of falling headlong into that type of heresy comes with either literally that statement or that thematically being throughout the whole thing. It can't say this, so therefore I can't, I can't believe that. Therefore the Bible can't be saying that. I'm going to tell you that at one time in our lives, folks, the Bible said a whole bunch of things that none of us could believe. It's always a mystery to those who are lost. It is salvation to those who are found. Oftentimes the Bible is saying exactly what we hear. It's just that our ears are unredeemed. Unredeemed ears are incapable of hearing the truth of the scriptures. 
The natural person will reject the truth of Christ. Only the born-again believer is capable of embracing God's eternal plan. And I mean in its depth and its breadth. I mean all of it. Only the redeemed, only the initiated by the blood of Christ can really embrace what the Bible says. So therefore, we're going to have a problem here, folks. And here's the problem for the church. Is that the church will read the scriptures with an editor's eye. They'll follow it 99.9%, but there's something they'll hold out. They learned it this way. They were taught this. They heard this. Their daddy believed that. Their mama believed that. Whatever. Whatever. Simply put, we're called to believe the scriptures with no exceptions. Whenever I start to say, I'll believe this, but I won't believe that, then I would ask, why do you believe it over there? What, what convinced you of this, but won't convince you of the other? How sure is your salvation if it's founded on that slippery slope? The reality is this, is that Bible truth preached really starts to draw that hard and fast line between those who are willing to abandon everything they ever thought, thought and everything they ever believed for the sake of what God has said within the Scriptures and those who simply put are not willing to. And in the end, if I'll abandon God on one point, given enough pressure, I'll abandon God on every point. I'll fail to believe it all if someone asks me the right or the wrong way. Until belief is granted, everyone rejects the gospel in its entirety. Next, the corruption that the church should fear comes not as a frontal assault, but secretly and by stealthy measures. That's what he says. He says very simply. He says that um, who will secretly, secretly bring in destructive heresies. Secretly. Um, the word Peter uses is parasego which means introduce surreptitiously or to privily bring in secretly. It's never open. No one just climbs Today I'm going to preach heresy. It's whispered. It's insinuated. It grows and simply put it metastasizes within the body of believers. It starts off as a doubt. It starts off as a fear. It starts off as some rationalization of something we really want the Bible to say this, but it does and it won't allow that. And what we do, we rationalize it away. And then before long, it grows into heresy. False doctrines and damning heresies that the church must war against are not beating on the doors, but sneaking in the windows trying to avoid notice. They're trying to weasel their way in, to work their way in. Now, here, here's the problem. Again, I think we realize the depth of this problem. It's not that these heretics, these false teachers, would come and storm the gates and tear the doors down and force you to listen to it. It's that they find a willing audience. They find a, a church or an aspect of the church or a clique in the church or a Sunday school class or somebody that wants to hear it that way and it grows in that way. It's not orthodox. It's not doctrine. It's not supported by Scripture, but there's plenty of people lining up to believe it. Before long, you look up, you've got a whole church of heretics. Why? Because it grew that way. It grew like a cancer. Because that's what it does. Fearfully, many churches are tolerating the teachings of evil things they have always taught. 
Now, once again, I think that's the problem is that this is not a declaration that you should go back throughout your time and find the most traditional thing your church has ever taught. Because that simply is not right either because you don't know when this heresy crept in. Could have crept in a hundred years ago. And you had generation after generation after generation believing that very heresy. I'll tell you where, where I've seen it creep in. Where I've seen it creep in is that we have taken the gospel message and compromised it so much. Why? Because you could preach it this way over here and it was easy for, easier for men and women to make a decision of their own will that changes nothing. And then we wonder how come we do that? And, 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 and trying to discipline and trying to teach that group of so-called believers is like Trent Lott says, like herding cats. You can't do it. You can't keep them in. you got to do what Charles Finney said and threaten every single one of them with hell if they depart. And it's the only way to keep them there. That's, that's the heresy I've seen in the 52 years that I've been a Baptist. That's the deepest heresy right there. Preaching a gospel that's easy to commit to but not transformative in the least. It doesn't change anybody. It makes them feel good. Makes them feel fantastic. They pledged allegiance to Jesus. They weren't, never have been. There's the issue right there. There's the deepest issue. Heresies gain momentum when they are ignored. Substantively, Peter warns us that heresies are that heresies are destructive. That word he says um, he says destructive heresies. Um, the King James Version says damnable heresies. I would put them together. I'd put them damnable destructive heresies. If you want to express it in English, that's the best way. Apuleia, which means eternal ruin or loss. Literally another translation of the word apuleia is perdition. And we understand within the language of the scriptures that perdition is hell itself. Heresies lead to hell. What makes something a heresy? It leads to hell every single time. What makes something a heresy, it obscures the truth of the cross so much. The responsibility of men and women to the truth that they can no longer see it and they will wind up in hell. He gives them either false assurance or false conviction or false something. But in the end, they will die and bust hell wide open because of heresy. Heresy condemns and never saves. Be, be clear about that. Secret heresies openly tolerated lead to hell. Finally, Peter calls this destructive teaching heresy or heresis. In the Greek, it means a self-chosen opinion. Boy, that's the one that, that always kind of lights my fire a little bit. Because everything in the American church is about what we want. Everything in the American church is about the fact that I chose. It's all about me. My declaration is that I have pledged to Jesus and I have done this and that I have done that. And how, what more could obscure the cross than my accomplishment? The only accomplishments that matter are the accomplishments of Jesus. The very word itself means that we have chosen wrongly. You turn people loose to choose, and how will they choose every single time? Wrongly. How ourselves. The issues that the church faces today is between the righteous opinion of God expressed in the scriptures or an opinion that forms on his that a man forms on his own. As Solomon expressed in Proverbs 18:2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. 
In the light of this passage, we can say that heresies are secret opinions of men and women expressed as gospel fact that lead to eternal damnation in hell. How do we know a heresy? It condemns people. That's how we know what heresy is. The danger is in having any opinion that is contrary to what the Bible clearly teaches. Any opinion that's contrary to what the Bible teaches, any opinion is dangerous. So what should our response be? If the scriptures say give, give generously. Why would I say that? Because I can't tell you how many times I've sat around with people in Baptist churches arguing about whether or not you should tithe or not. I can't tell you how many times. And it had nothing to do with the Bible. It had everything to do with their squeakiness, if you know what I mean. They were just too cheap, too cheap to give back to God that which was already his to start with. And they were going to couch it or ensconce it in some kind of biblical nonsense. My own daddy did that. It was the same thing. It was nothing but a man that didn't want to give any money. That liked his money in his pocket where he thought it belonged. It is biblical nonsense. Now listen to me. It's not heresy. It's not heresy. Because it doesn't condemn necessarily to hell. But understand this much. I think any believer in this room that adopts a stance that the Bible clearly rejects is, is in danger. I don't care what the subject it is. I don't care who told you. I don't care how long ago it was or how much your mom or your daddy were convinced that was right. If the Bible denies it, it is by definition wrong. Do we understand that? So if the Bible says give, give generously. If the Bible says work, then work tirelessly. If the Bible says love, then love without regard for your heart. And I might add, I might say this, then love who the Bible says for you to love. Love your enemies, love other races, love people from other countries, love everybody. If the Bible says do that, then doggone it, you better do it. And if you're not, I would just say this simply put, it's not heresy, but you're in danger of hellfire. Because the Bible says to do the opposite. The Bible addresses everybody we'd want to hate naturally. The Bible calls us to love them in response. Then love is we're supposed to love. Fear. The Bible says to fear, then fear is if your life was in the balance, because it is. The Bible says fear God, then you better fear it. The Bible says fear heresy, and it certainly implies it. Then what should we do? We should fear anything that looks or smells or acts like heresy. If the Bible says flee as it does with sexual sin or anything that would allure us, then run away as fast as possible. We don't, we don't hang out with those things. Any other stance invites the heart to embrace condemning, destructive, heretical views. All I'm saying is a very, very simple proposition. That if I will, if I will rationalize, the way biblical rationalize the way biblical truth on this one issue, I'll wind up doing it on all of them. We either stand with the truth or we don't. The battle against heresies can seem to those who are not actively engaged in it like a blistering fight over a handful of words. That's another one of the issues there. First off, I get it. The first thing is I get it because I've been involved, um, young men, in those groups of young men where somebody just call, started calling everybody a her heretic. You know what I mean? To the point that I don't want to ever do that unless I absolutely have to. Because we were calling people a heretic because they disagreed with us. As if we were the standard. 
as if Tony Keys is the gold standard of all doctrine. I'm here to tell you, Tony Keys can be wrong as easily as any other man can. We are men. We are fallible. Some of the, the greatest preachers who've ever preached on this earth were catastrophically wrong about things. Catastrophically wrong about things. I have brothers in the faith who, who support pedo-baptism. I believe it to be biblically wrong. That means baptizing babies. I believe it to be biblically wrong. That doesn't make them a heretic. I believe they're wrong. They have reasons for what they believe, but I believe firmly that they are wrong to do that. Can a belief like that rise to, to, the, to the level of heresy? I, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Can my anti-belief of that rise to the level of heresy? I'm not sure about that. I just know this, that over that very issue, Calvin tossed bound men into Lake Geneva and let them drown. They were the Anabaptists. They were the rebaptizers. They condemned these men to be drowned. So I know that even an issue like that, we must deal with in a Christian fashion. There's no doubt about it. But deep, deep down, folks, what do we do? We battle over words. I want everybody to understand that. The battle is simply put over a handful of words. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, he rebuked this, you know, kind of our annoying excuse that we shouldn't just fight over a bunch of words when he said, if you're not going to argue about words, what are you going to argue about? Are you going to convey your meaning to me by moving your ears? The church and the heresies always used to fight about words because they are the only thing worth fighting about. I'm going to tell you this much. The gospel is a collection of words. And it is absolutely the one thing on this earth worth fighting about. If you're going to wage a war, if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to be aggressive, then be aggressive for the gospel. For the proclamation of the gospel. As a church, our hearts and minds must be constantly committed to the proclamation of the words of the cross and on the spiritual and theological health of the next generation. That's the, the main motivator. Is that we're doing this for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. We're doing this for people we'll never lay eyes on. Do you understand? The legacy of this church is not this building. This building will and is crumbling. And one of these days will be no more. So. So. But this church will last until it is joined to Christ in the air. The building will be forgotten. There won't even be a photo left if Christ tarries long enough. But the church, the body of believers, lasts until Christ returns. The Apostle John exemplified this virtue when he writes in, in 3 John 4. He said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. We want that joy. We want not just to see that our individual children, our, our biological children, but, but our, our biological grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-greats. As far back as we go, we want the this, this satisfaction that we've handed down to them, this legacy of truth. That really matters. That changes our life. Look, I know this is not super exciting. I'm not apologizing for that. I'm telling you right here. This is the fight of our lives. This is the one that matters. It's not all the nonsense we get caught up in. You can pay off every bill in the world. Everything's ever bothered you. And you can still be poor in this matter. I tell you what. You can die a pauper. A pauper. And leave a legacy of truth to your kids. And die satisfied. How many tumultuous rich people we met in our lives that had all the money in the world and not, a, not an iota piece? Not one bit. You know why? 
because their lives were a lie. They were built on lies. Take an active stand against heresy and for sound, biblical, orthodox teaching. The only matter that's permanent, the only legacy that's lasting, and the only inheritance that is impactful and authentic is the gospel truth. Look, either we hand down the saving truth to those generations that come after us, or we leave them a shallow, hollow endowment of lies and half-truths. And all that does, make their earthly lives more placid and more palatable. Because that's exactly what the world wants. Leave me alone. Let me be. Let me believe the way I want to. Let me think the way I want to. And I'll be happy then. Denying true joy. Embracing condemnation. That they just put out of their minds. You know how I know that? Because I did it and you did it too, didn't you? You knew what the conclusion was going to be on the life you were leading. You knew the path that your truth was laying out. And you just put it out of your mind. You did everything you could to distract yourself. That's what the world actively does right now. They're living on a placid and palatable lie. All it does is ensure that the penalty of their sins is personally and not divinely paid. Eternal life, folks, for us is at stake. Eternal life. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Corinth wrote in 1 Corinthians 4.14. I do not write these things to you to, to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. At the heart, the, the soul of this teaching is that idea right there. That idea that we are here to do this because I love you and we love each other. And this is what the church does. When the church even suspects that its membership is wrong about things, um, embracing unbiblical ideas about every topic whatsoever. What do we do? We preach about it. Because that's what the Bible does. Because that's what Paul did with the very ones that he said he loved. Paul's admonishment was like many Pauline statements. It's grounded in a higher truth, but it's addressing everyday practices that were shameful and destructive to the body of Christ. And what I mean is this is that we can start to hold bad ideas and those bad ideas will manifest in, in, in very subtle ways that are part of, of who we are every single day. For instance, the Corinthians, they had a poor understanding of the focus of the gospel message. The Corinthians were rich and they were prideful and they, they, were, they were very secular to start with. And if you read, go back and read First and Second Corinthians, Paul was constantly pointing the direction back to who? Back to Christ. He decided to what? To know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He was to become one note Charlie. Why? Because the Corinthians had taken their eyes off the cross. And they started to look at all these little things. And what they found was a whole bunch of stuff within their daily practice that made them feel good about being them, that lifted them up, that exaggerated their importance. Manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Signs and wonders. They became infatuated with signs and wonders. Skipping the cross. Because all they cared about was what they did. What they could claim to do. There, uh, they degenerated to hollow, self-aggrandizing worship. And had no sacredness in communion. In the end, all of that nonsense within the worship of the Corinthian church. Manifest, manifested itself best in how they approached the Lord's table. They did it greedily. Because everything else in the church was about who? Was about them. So you knock somebody down to take the bread and the wine out of their hands. Why? 
Because it's all about you. It's all about what you're doing. For the Thessalonians. What's funny about this, about especially 2 Thessalonians, which is the letter I want to preach through so bad and pray that God lets me live long enough to do it, was that in 2 Thessalonians, this is, a, this is primarily about clearing up some, some, some oddities that they had believed about the second coming, the parousia of Christ. Well, here's what's weird about it is if you go back and read that very carefully, Paul tells them, I told you the Mount of Lawlessness is. They knew what to expect. He didn't preserve it within the letter that we have. But in his private teaching of them that was holy and good but not preserved for all time, Paul tells them what to believe. But they didn't believe that. They started to believe rumors and ideas that were coming up. And what did it lead them to do? A lack of comprehension of the last days before the parousia caused them to refrain from daily work and indulge in idleness. Because they believed that Jesus had already returned, they quit. So the whole letter that's fantastic about understanding the end times, Paul's really writing for one purpose, get back to work. Don't be lazy. He says, look, I work every day. You're going to work. You think it's imminent that he's right now, that he's coming for you right now? You work up until the moment he gets back. Don't sit there and just stare at the east. Work till Jesus comes. He does all that to make that one point. So, so we ought to be used to it. The church needs constant admonishment because it will, by the nature of humans, seek the faithless path. That's who we are, guys. That's what we'll do. Isaiah wrote prophetically of the church in Isaiah 39 through 10. He says, For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. That's who we've always been. That's why the preaching has to be so hard and so hot all the time. That's why we have to be herded in so many ways and inspired and rebuked and admonished. Why? Because if you leave us alone, we won't believe rightly. We'll choose to believe wrongly because it helps out our case. Who say the peers do not see into the prophets, do not prophesy to, what is, to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions. The natural state of humanity is to want for God to say to us that everything is all right. When oftentimes God is saying, repent. I want to believe that my actions are right. But more often than not, God is condemning my actions and calling me to repent. The tendency of men and women is to seek from God affirming statements. If they do not come to redefine God and truth in a human image. The heart of heresy is that. The heart of heresy is to rob God of his godness. Rob God of his majesty. Of his ability to, to instruct, of his ability to command. That's the heart of heresy. The root of heresy is a demonic form of excuse making. People want to do as they please, and they want to not feel guilty about it. That's what the world wants. I want to live my life any old way I doggone want to, and I don't want anybody, including God, to say anything about it. God is love. That means he's telling me that everything I do is just peachy keen, and it's not. While our desires for the chaos of sin, the creator God, Christ Jesus, has one mission. Bring order and peace to the maelstrom of sin. What makes all this teaching so heretical is you go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis 1-2. We find out exactly what kind of God God really is. He's one who sees darkness and brings light to it. Who sees chaos and brings order. That's what God does. It's one mission. Bring order and peace to the maelstrom of sin. Moses reveals this in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God sees it. He sees what it's like. 
He, he understands it. And the reaction of the Lord to the state of the earth is, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. The earth was dark, and God brought light to it. God's goal is always through doctrine, the doctrines of the church, the preaching and teaching of the church that represents the true gospel is to bring light to darkness. Anyone who's in bondage to darkness to break those shackles and set them free. That's what the gospel does. It's what it's got to do. The light is strong enough, piercing enough, it will leave no corner unilluminated. That's what's so beautiful about the gospel is that it's, it's infinitely luminous. It won't let me keep my darkness. It won't let me hate people because of their race. It won't let me hoard my money away because it's mine and I work for it. It won't let me believe what I want to believe. Because that's what the gospel does. It shines a light into every corner of the darkness. The functional will of God in interacting with humanity that is lost in, in, in anarchical confusion is to shed light upon the system and chase away every shadow. As Christ says in John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. To embrace Christ is embrace the light. The light that changes, that saves. It brings eternal life. And it chases away eternal darkness and therefore eternal death. The darkness of Christ are literally the opposite of the darkness. Excuse me, the doctrines of Christ are literally the opposite of the darkness of the world. Doctrine is all light without any shadow at all. Unfortunately, the world wants a pseudo-truth that is in line with its shadowy sensuality and its decimating desires. In the end, folks, this is not intellectual. This is right in the flesh. This is manifested in the flesh. Manifested in the fact that we want to do with our bodies what we want to do. And we don't want anybody telling us the opposite. A, functional, a function of natural, inherent human weakness and a societal addiction to therapeutic excuses. The situation has created a culture that rejects truth in favor of slogans and meaningless, pithy chants. Love is love. How many times have I been confronted with love? It's love, love. It's a meaningless, pithy chant. It says nothing. Nothing. But there's, there's the grounds of the culture war now. Look, June 1.18 explains this by saying, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. All that's happening is what's always happened from the very, very beginning. We're preaching truth and there's somebody lined up to scoff. To laugh about it. Because it doesn't meet their sensibilities. But deep, deep down, why are they doing it? Because they got ungodly passions. Because they're being ruled by ungodly passions. Whether it's a man who wants to step out on his wife or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's still an ungodly passion. People siding with their flesh, not just with, not just with their flesh over, over the Spirit of God, but with their flesh over their own mind. Because what they're saying and they think makes no sense at all. At its heart, the rebellion is not new at all, but as old as humankind and revealed in the verses of Scripture. People scoff at the truth that they deny with their lies because they see so dimly and their only response is to make fun of what they cannot fathom. They're making fun because simply put, understand this, they do not understand the gospel at all. 
They don't understand the peace that comes through the murdered Son of God. And that produces in humans like us an embracing of the living gospel. The opposite of a life of sin, shame, suffering, and silence, and death is in the scriptures. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In the end, Paul says, I got one pattern, and that's faith and love in Christ Jesus, and follow that pattern. We don't preach philosophical nonsense. We don't preach a bunch of, 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 uh, of silly, uh, trivial little things. We preach about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We preach words of the cross. And so like Paul, I'd say this, follow those things. That's the sound words. That's the sound doctrine of this church. It's a bloody cross. And it's an empty tomb. And it's a throne that's occupied by the one true son. The gospel gives men and women a pattern not just to avoid hell, as some would preach it, but to reject those earthly passions that decimate and that dominate and decimate life if unchecked. Because Christ didn't come to save you from hell. He came to save you from sin. The reward of your sin is hell. There's no doubt. The punishment eternal for your sin is hell. There's no doubt about that. But he didn't come to save you from hell. He came to save you from sin. He came to save me from my sin. If not, my sins would have dragged me to a fiery hell. Doubtless. But he came to save us from, from sin. Pink, Arthur W. Pink proclaimed this. He said, so many are fatally deceived for there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire who have no desire to be delivered from their carnality and worldliness. People want a ticket out of hell. They want fire insurance. And Christ comes for so much more than that. The gospel is not any derivation of misunderstood truth concerning God, but are literally the healing words of Christ that deliver men and women from their sins. The bloody words of the cross today have but one response Stated unequivocally by Jonah in Jonah 2.9. He said, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. The Son of God was sacrificed for our sins. And now it is our turn to sacrifice for Him. To live purposefully and differently as a sign and a portent to the world that they must repent and believe. Today is the day that we decide that we have to pay what we owe. And what we owe is a life for a life. To embrace the will of God for our lives. And therefore to embrace the doctrines of God as the very songs of our heart. Jonah says salvation belongs to the Lord. He declares this and it is true. Salvation is found today in no one else but the Son of God. God. And I would challenge you today, if you have not, today, repent of your sins and believe the gospel before it is everlasting too late. Let's pray together.